The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, August 14th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Here's how Donald Trump's mind works. Warning, you are about to enter Donald Trump's mind. Has the person ever criticized you? If yes, annihilate him. Has the person ever complimented you? including instances of the Russian word for interesting being mistranslated into brilliant. If the person ever has complimented you, then he is your friend. However, what if the person stands for an ideology or hate group whose goals are in opposition to the American strength, values, and history that you hug like a flag? What do you do then? We're in Donald Trump's mind, remember. You denounce them. But what if the members of that hateful ideology have said nice things about you in the past. Maybe their newspaper gave you an endorsement. This one is so hard. It's hurting our head inside Donald Trump's head. Uh, Here's what you do. You find someone else who criticized you to lump them in with. See also. Will I get along with him? I have no idea. He's a killer though. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why you think our country's so innocent? Uh, Putin's a killer. Obama's a killer. Mika's cosmetic surgeon, total killer. And so we come to Charlottesville and the president's bold, brave, non-distancing himself from the KKK and Nazis. Not soup Nazis, grammar Nazis or feminazis. Nazis, Nazis. Why would Trump not just call out the Nazis? Well, some cite the alt-right enablers within his tightest circles. His right-hand man is Steve Bannon. Off to the side is Bond villain, more of a Bond henchman, Sebastian Gorka. Off to the other side, there is Stephen Miller, Jew, so maybe not a Nazi, but not not a fascist. And Miller's political patron in this sideshow is Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who's eighth in line for the presidency. What I'm saying is that Trump has surrounded himself with plenty of elements who've enabled and emboldened the sleazebags in Charlottesville, surrounded himself on many sides. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. Many sides. So we'll just have to watch how Trump's fascist blindness syndrome progresses The most common cure for fascist blindness syndrome is just pointing out you're being blind to fascists. But fascist blindness syndrome in a small number of cases can linger. It co-occurs with Antifa are bad to palsy. Check a doctor or the Constitution if symptoms last more than one electoral cycle. So on today's show, are you wondering why I sound like I sound, a little different from how I sound? Well, I'll tell you. I'm in the only country in the world without mosquitoes. Also this country, I found out, has zero nail salons. Fun fact, I'm in Iceland. I'll tell you about my visit to a weird and sad little museum here. But first, to the United States and their government, your government, our government, the return to regular order. Gosh, don't the stalwart men and women of the Senate love regular order? But just how regular and orderly is it, really? Political scientist Josh Huter is here with the answers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Regular order, you always hear senators going on about the glories of regular order, though if you know anything about the demographics of senators at their age, they like anything regular, be it digestion or mealtimes, you know, right before Matlock. But what is regular order? How regular is it? And how orderly? Joining us now is Joshua Huter. He is a Government Affairs Institute senior fellow at Georgetown University, and he wrote about regular order for the Rule 22 blog. Hello, Josh. Hi, Mike. How you doing? I'm, I'm well. So let's take this in order. Uh, the first question is just define regular order when John McCain and others talk about that. What specifically do they mean? Uh, regular order is typically associated with like a robust committee process. Um, so when you hear somebody talk about regular order, they're really talking about like the 1960s or the 70s where a bill was introduced. It went to committee. Uh, the committee then debated that bill. They marked it up and amended it. They then sent that to the floor where it got another round of amendments and was uh, marked up again. And then it went to the other chamber. So it's basically the schoolhouse rock version of how a bill becomes a law. Is it orderly? I mean, it seems orderly, but maybe that's just because I saw Schoolhouse Rock. No, it, it, it is orderly, uh, especially compared to like what you see today, for example, or what you saw in the early 1900s or late 1800s. Um, so in terms of like how routine the institution is, yeah, like it, essentially it is sort of like dietary in a way, right? It's more regular than not. Right. But is it regular in terms of this is the usual way they do it? I mean, you just made references to other centuries where they didn't do it. And I think the implication is, well, this is the way it's done. It's supposed to be done. And it has always been been done. No, that's a really good point. Uh, so the last time we saw this sort of routine mechanized process with a robust committee process and then a robust floor debate uh, was the mid to late 1970s. Um, and so since then, we've becoming, be, been becoming increasingly unorthodox in the way that we make laws. 
Why do the senators like McCain valorize it so much? I mean, if it was common in the 70s, he didn't get to the Senate until the 80s. Was it that his predecessors whispered in his ear that this is the way it's supposed to be done? Or does it have something more to do that if you're not in leadership, uh, it's good for a senator with seniority? You know, I can't really say why they want to go back to regular order. And, you know, part of me thinks like they really don't know what they're asking for in, in many respects. But I do think like people like McCain, uh, people who have been around the institution since the 80s, they saw pieces of this where like, for example, appropriations bills would go through this very normal, regular process where it would go through committee, they'd vote it out, and then it, you know, it would go and pass both chambers. Um, that process broke down in the early 90s. We haven't seen the appropriations process work in a regular time since 1994. Well, it seems to me that the breakdown of regular order also coincides with other trends in politics that might be more to blame for the dysfunction. So I, I think in the critique, and I definitely think that the media generally buys into this critique that A, Congress is dysfunctional, and B, the process is at least partly to blame. But let me lay another factor out there. As McCain's been in the Senate, there's this huge ideological sorting so conservatives are Republicans and liberals are Democrats to a degree that wasn't when he started, let's say. Maybe that's a lot more, has a lot more to do with the dysfunction than the committee process, for instance. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot to that. Um, for one of the reasons is that you have to question whether regular order would actually even work in this type of environment. Um, so, for example, we tried regular order with the appropriations bills in 2015, uh, mm -hmm. and those got completely derailed because an open amendment process on the floor allowed any senator or any member of Congress to walk down there and introduce any amendment to that bill. Um, and what uh, Mr. Maloney from New York effectively did was break down the uh, appropriations process by dividing the majority party with a LGBTQ amendment on every single one of those bills <laughs> um, or like a, a Confederate flag amendment on every single one of those bills. I mean, these are things that really divided the majority party and you can't pass bills that way. Yeah. And do you think process is leading to dysfunction or dysfunction is leading to this process uh, breaking down. And I'll acknowledge there are implications there, like that uh, like the dysfunction is new and also that the process of regular order somehow is like a superior process. But, but what do you think? What, what's the cause and what's the effect? I think it's both, right? You can't have one without the other. Um, on the one hand, you have a ve you have very, very cohesive parties in ways that we haven't seen in a very long time. On the other hand, you have very real fractures within those parties. Um, so, for example, the Republican Party is a very, very fractured party, even though it looks unified in a lot of respects. Um, so they have the sort of like standard Republican. And then you've got the, the right wing of the Republican Party, which is the uh, Mr. Meadows and the Freedom Caucus. Um, and they have very, very strong uh, strategic differences in how they address issues. Um, so the question is, what kind of process, how does process fit in here? Um, and the real problem is, is that right now, uh, congressional leaders like uh, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have usurped a lot of the power in the legislative process. And so broadly speaking, yeah, that's been the trend, right? The further away from regular order you've gotten means that more and more party leaders have been in control. Okay. So then maybe it's fair to say you're the leader. You have this process which emphasizes your power. We're getting nothing done. Therefore, you do deserve the blame. Right.
I mean, I think that's a completely fair criticism. Uh, on the other hand, right, they seem to not willing to be not willing to go along with things that have to get done. So, for example, this debt ceiling vote is really problematic. So they're in a really tough spot. Uh, and the, on the one hand, I think they do like the fact that they have a lot of control. On the other, like there's a real, real, real tension. Either they're not satisfying the right wing of the party or the right wing of the party is not willing to be satisfied by anything. Um, and that's the struggle that they're sort of facing. Right. Well, underlining all this is the fact that um, there's there's the idea among, well, you know, you tell me if it's only among Republicans, but I know that uh, Denny Hastert emphasized it, and I think Newt Gingrich, that we're not going to bring to the floor any uh, bill, any idea that doesn't have at least the majority of the Republican caucus behind it. So you need a majority of the majority. But there can be, I mean, we could envision a number of uh, pieces of legislation that the Congress overall would favor, but it wouldn't have a majority of Republicans. It might have all the Democrats and some Republicans. It's just hard to get those bills introduced. That's such a great point. It's not It's not that they, they don't have the the, the way to get those introduced. You can introduce those bills. Uh, the problem is, is that we've moved sort of beyond the Hastert rule where you need a majority of the majority. And now it looks like in the House of Representatives and increasingly in the Senate these days, you need just the majority to pass the bill, right? No longer do we even need votes from the other party. And in fact, we're not even going to look for them, right? We're only going to find votes from our party and we're going to pass it from our party. And so I think that, yes, this process is to a very, very large degree driving these schisms, right? Um, driving the, the, the fact that we have more polarized parties. Um, and the fact that we don't see bipartisanship is because it's being uh, winnowed out by the leaders or by people controlling the process. Um, you know, these, this bipartisan process used to be part of regular order. We found more bipartisanship in there because of the people who are in control of those processes. One bad thing we saw, uh, bad as defined by most of the people participating in the process, uh, with the last health care bill was it being introduced late and it and no one knowing what was in the bill or people being asked to vote on a bill that they were told wasn't a bill. And it does seem that, you know, I don't know if the solution to that is regular order, but it seems from everything you're saying that that part of it isn't necessarily a consequence of going away from regular order. In other words, you could choose regular order or you could even have the current system, but you don't have to have this, you know, last minute rush to vote on something you don't know about. No, that's absolutely right. And that's a that's a really, really good point because it emphasizes how different uh, this process was. Um, doing everything behind closed doors from the drafting to amending to the redrafting to figuring out which amendments we're going to throw on the floor, uh, all of that was behind closed doors in a way that was unprecedented, right, in modern legislative history, right? You can find precursors to it back in the 1910s and the 1900s, but that's a long time ago. And we have opened up government and transparency in some really fundamental ways. Um, so what's unique about this process were exactly the things that you emphasized, that it was behind closed doors and it was all last second. Um, Democrats, when they were passing the Affordable Care Act in 2009 and 2010, had some similar kind of 
uh, things going on. The difference is, is that they had a robust committee process where they had tons of committee hearings. You had some markups um, that actually sort of gave you an outline of what they were looking to do. Now, the actual thing they ended up passing was very much a leadership-driven process. Nancy Pelosi carved together a bunch of different pieces of language from inside her caucus. She threw it on the floor last second, and then they passed the bill. And there's a really, really, there's a solid argument that unless she does that, the ACA does not get passed in 2010. Would you say the ACA was passed under regular order? No, not even close to regular order. Uh, so we have to remember that the ACA was uh, two different bills. It wasn't one bill, right? Um, so after the Senate passed a version of the bill with 60 votes uh, on Christmas Eve, then during that break, uh, Ted Kennedy dies and they no longer have a 60 vote threshold in the Senate. So the House knows that they can't amend the bill and send it back to the Senate because it doesn't have the votes to get past the filibuster and you can't pass it. So what they end up doing is saying, okay, we'll take the Senate bill, we'll pass it, and then we'll amend it with a different piece of legislation. And so they pass the Senate bill and then Nancy Pelosi crafts a reconciliation bill behind closed doors, right? And in consultation with a variety of members from her own caucus, they put that on the floor, right? They put it together in the rules committee. It's put on the floor the next legislative day, which is really just a few hours before the rules committee okayed it. And then they pass that. Right. So that is a phenomenally not regular order process. Um, So even though they did have all of those hearings, right, the legislative language that made up that reconciliation bill didn't really come from committees. So there's a big, big component of the ACA that was not passed under regular order. So September, sometime uh, third week of September, Senate comes back. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, I believe so. Maybe earlier than that. Okay. So Senate comes back. There's talk of uh, Lamar Alexander uh, running his committee, getting all bipartisan on uh, health care uh, specifically. Is that going to be conducted under regular order? Uh, well, you would hope so. Um, and one of the reasons that you might expect that it'd be more regular order, or at least a more robust committee process than before, is it's unclear whether or not you can use reconciliation to repeal the afford- appeal and or replace the Affordable Care Act after September 30th. So the idea of reconciliation is that on budgetary matters and matters that um, where the funding evens out, you could just pass a bill with the majority as opposed to the 60 votes that you might normally need in the, the way the Senate works. Correct. So if that process to repeal or replace the Affordable Care Act expires on September 30th, like many people are arguing and what I sort of expect to be the case, Mm -hmm. then you really only have a couple weeks to do this. And that's just not possible. So if you're going to approach the ACA and amend it or change it in any way, shape or form, you're going to have to do it through a regular order process with a 60 vote filibuster threshold. Um, And so assuming you can get that out of the Senate, Uh, that would have to get 60 votes and then they'd send it to the House where who knows what happens to it. Maybe and probably it dies again. Uh, But you would think that it would go through a more regular order process where you're trying to get Democratic input in addition to Republican input to change the bill. Okay, so here's my last question. It's uh, on a much more global topic, but going all the way back to our first Congress, all the way through Sumner getting caned on the floor um, through... Uh, Dirksen and not being able to get a vote for civil rights added all up, all of Congress. Uh, Where does our current state of Congress fall on the uh, bell curve or the curve of dysfunction? (laughs) Oh, it's way up there. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I 
I, I, you know, the 113th Congress was like the second worst Congress since the Civil War, right? So if you want to, at least in my opinion, in terms of dysfunction, like it's tough to say because I think September 30th, like whether we have a CR or not, the government's going to shut down or not, whether we can raise the debt ceiling. So all the really important stuff that we really need to happen is going to have to occur in the next month. And if Congress can get that done, maybe they start to slide back into the not worst Congress ever phase. Uh, but the next month is going to be pretty uh pretty important for them. So we'll have to judge after uh, September 30th. Go for it, guys. You have the title of (laughs) only second worst Congress on the line. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Josh Huter is a senior fellow at Georgetown, and he writes for the uh, Rule 22 blog. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. One of the greatest chess players in world history, Bobby Fischer, has a strange connection to this, one of the smallest but best educated countries in the world, Iceland. Bobby Fischer's connection to this land is that he played a series of matches in Reykjavik and defeated Boris Spatsky in 1972. It was called the match of the century, and it's hard to overstate how much these chess matches captured the public's attention. The public in Russia, where Spatsky was in a long line of grandmasters in a chess-loving country, the public in America, and captured Icelandic attention, which wasn't hard. It was just about the most notable international event since the eruption of the Laki volcano in 1783, which killed a quarter of Iceland's population and almost all of its sheep and cows. But Fischer was volcanic himself. Though in 1972, he was just seen as difficult. But his peccadilloes and demands on tournament organizers were eclipsed by his prodigious talent on the chessboard. After that, however, he quickly devolved into erratic, then insane, and then sinister. In 1992, Fischer played a match in the former Yugoslavia, which violated a United Nations embargo that made him a wanted man in the U.S. He continued to live, travel in Japan, but he became vocally anti-American and anti-Semitic. He denied the Holocaust. He touted the virtues of Mein Kampf and the protocols of the elders of Zion. He gave an interview to a Filipino TV station where he said of the United States, quote, I hope the country will be taken over by the military. They'll close down all the synagogues, arrest all the Jews, execute hundreds of thousands of Jewish ringleaders. In 2004, he was detained in Japan for passport violations. And there he sat for many months, almost a year, until the intervention of Iceland. This tiny, then fish-based nation at the time credited Fisher for putting it on the map. Though, more credit in that regard, should be given to the 15th century Danish cartographer Claudius Clavis. Fischer's final three years, spent all living in Iceland, were free from bombast and controversy. Or maybe that's just what the guardians of his legacy want us to believe. That certainly was what was on display at the Bobby Fischer Center in Selfus, a city, town, really, of about 7,000 people, that's 30 miles from Reykjavik. I don't know what I expected at the Bobby Fischer Center. Maybe some acknowledgement of the ugly side of the life of Bobby Fischer. There was nothing of that. Just the minimal narrative for the visitor to understand that Fischer was not allowed to travel from Japan until Iceland intervened. No references to anti-Semitism. There was one quote calling George Bush a monster. Perhaps I thought there would be effluvia or relics from the time 
that he spent in Iceland that gave me an insight into the man? Again, no. There were some doodads, I guess you'd call them, from the 1972 World Championships, ticket stubs, programs, nothing like a handwritten note or anything unique that would give us insight into his play or his style or his thinking or his person. Finally, I was wondering if there would be some sort of key to unlock the enigma that was Bobby Fischer. After not seeing one mention of the word Jewish, hopes for that vanished. But really, when you think about it, doesn't the key, the unlocking key, seem like the stuff of a neatly structured biopic? So there was no rosebud moment. There wasn't even a seedling of an insight. The items they had were so tangentially connected to the man that it was a bit pathetic. A chair he once sat on. The order of books from his favorite used bookstore that he died before he could pick up. I can report this. There, unread by Bobby Fischer, a paperback copy of Ripley's Believe It or Not, a couple of joke books, and a Doonesbury collection. This wasn't exactly the banality of evil. I mean, to be fair, Fischer was so far lost in the warrens of his own mind, I don't even know if it's fair to describe him as evil, no matter the tone that his rantings took. In a way, maybe it was poetic justice that this chaotic, difficult, and tempestuous figure, a walking international incident, could be reduced to the anodyne. Bobby Fischer's gravestone is in a churchyard down the road, and two miles from that is this center dedicated to his life. There you can buy a tote bag featuring the logo of the world championships if you can stave off the sense of elision of the most interesting aspects of the subject's life. A life rendered meaningless in trying to capture it through ticket stubs, an empty chair, and some unread joke books. The Gist was produced today by Chris Rogerson and Mary Joannes Dorter. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve, let's say, Donaldson. There's actually a very interesting documentary about that whole thing. Very, very interesting. The Gist, as they say in this land, Egkem alveg af folkem, which means I come completely from the mountains, a.k.a. I have no idea what you're talking about. I come completely from the mountains on this one. Oomperu de Peru and thanks for listening.